Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. So before we uh, get started, Karen, why don't you just tell me a bit about yourself and, and tell me how you got connected with this case, because I understand you've been there since the beginning. Right. So I'm a digital broadcast journalist for Global News based in Toronto, and I do cover a great deal of crime. And I remember that there was this evening back in 2017, it was November, and that I had seen a post on Facebook. And um, much like many of our stories, um, it started with this basic post about a missing girl and I hadn't heard about her disappearance by police, and it just sort of stood out to me, and I remember flagging it to our assignment desk, and then, lo and behold, a short time later, it might have even been the next day, Toronto Police sent out this news release about a missing girl named Tess Ritchie. She was 22 years old. She'd been reported missing in the Church in Wellesley area, and that in Toronto is, by, is the gay village. And I was working a morning shift. I was reporting on her disappearance when an update came a few days later that she'd been found. Um, it was not a suspicious death. And then suddenly another update after that indicating, in fact, it was a homicide. The cause of death was death, was neck compression. And that's it's sort of all stemmed from there. And I feel like over the years, I've, I've stuck with this story and I've gotten to know the family as a result of that. And I can tell you that this is a really remarkable family that's just been through any parent's worst nightmare. And, um, and then, of course, I was there through the course of the trial as well. Mm-hmm. And now, so it started for you with basically just seeing a catching wind of a Facebook post, and and you started following it. Here we are now, nearly four years later, and you know you're you're just now, I guess, seeing the end result of basically the the entire story playing out. So well, let's go through some of it. Uh, but before we we get too deep into like what actually happened. I know through your reporting, just as you said, you, you had a lot of contact with the family and got to learn a lot about them and about Tess. So wh- why don't you tell me a bit about her? Like, wh- who who is Tess Ritchie, and you know what what did you learn about her life and her personality? So when Tess had initially disappeared, um, we had interviewed Global News had interviewed two of her sisters, Rachel and Jenna. Um, they were worried sick about Tess. We learned that she was the youngest of five girls that she had gone out to party and that she had never returned. We learned quickly that it was this close-knit group of sisters, typical, you know, gang of sisters who always had a phone chat going. Um, and it wasn't like Tess to just vanish, that a sister would always know where the other sister was. Um, and so at the time, we also had been reporting about other men, who had, men specifically, who had been going missing from that same part of the city, the village. And so Tess's case became pretty high profile. Um, and, you know, but, but she, she didn't fit the profile of the other disappearances, which were particular or specific to gay men, I should say. Tess was just this young girl from North Bay, Ontario, had been living in Toronto. Again, a close-knit family of girls. And one day she's missing. She's gone. You mentioned she was from North Bay, Ontario, which I understand is outside of the city. What what brought her to living in Toronto? Like, what was she actually doing living in Toronto? Right. So she'd been living in Toronto for some time. She came here for school. She attended Seneca College. A couple of her sisters were here as well. This is a girl who, you know, by all accounts was full of life. I mean, you can even just see it when you look at her pictures, just a bubbly 
petite brunette. She dreamed of becoming a flight attendant. She wanted to travel the world. She was also an aunt, again, had all these sisters and just a lot of friends. Um, and I noticed that throughout the trial, many of them uh, would come to the court. Many of them have always you know, remained vocal on social media for years about the need to get justice for Tess. Um, and they've always spoken so highly of her, really, from the very beginning. Again, just this lovely girl, a lot of energy, so much promise. Um, and in fact, she was just days away from her 23rd birthday when this all happened. Mm-hmm. Now, it, it it all seemed to happen the night of November 25th, 2017. You, you had already mentioned she was out, uh, went out on the town that night, downtown Toronto, to, to party. C- can you tell me a bit about what was known about her activities that night? Like, what was she actually out doing and who was she with? So she had spent the day with her sister, Rachel, who would, by the way, go on to testify in a very painful um, testimony during the trial. So we learned that Tess had suffered a bad breakup, wasn't her first one. In fact, there was video on YouTube of a previous breakup, a very emotional Tess talking about it. But this one, again, took a toll on her emotionally. She's 22 years old, and like any other girl who had just been, you know, had suffered this split, she wanted to go out, wanted to have a fun night on the town. Um, she did keep in touch with Rachel at first when she got to the club. The club she went to, by the way, is a popular drag bar. Again, that's in the in the village in Toronto. It's called Cruise and Tangos on Church Street. She went alone, but she had plans to hook up with a friend of hers uh, from North Bay, in fact, named Riley, which she did. Um, and she had some drinks at the club, was dancing. And I'll note that much of the time in the club is actually captured on surveillance video. So, in fact, there's, there's even a moment where we see her crossing paths with the man who would turn out to be her killer, that too was captured on video, but the two never spoke, didn't know each other. Um, they, in fact, met later on after last call. So really just a night out. She went out to party. She had some drinks. She had a good time. And the the trouble, and really this story happens after last call when she leaves the bar, what what uh, trail basically did she leave from the point that she left the bar? Like what when, when she went missing... What did we know about her whereabouts and activities after the bar closed down? So this all takes place over this short stretch of, you know, a short distance in the village. Um, you know, she leaves the club. And, and I'll mention that what's so interesting about the times we live in, and, and especially the city of Toronto, is that so much of what we do is captured on camera. And really, right up until Tess's murder, we see her movements that night. All of it was shown in court during the trial. Tess left the club. Tess met Kaylin Schlater outside. Young man, met him outside. Short time later, she tries to hail a passing cab. He waves it off. We saw all this video in court. He said that the cab was holding up traffic, and that's why he had waved it off. We know that Tess was out walking with Schlater, Kaylin Schlater, and that old friend Riley, who she'd met at the club. They went to a hot dog stand. Again, there's video of this. Then they made their way down the street. They started chatting with a woman who was outside, um, Riley decides she's leaving. She takes takes off, and Tess started to leave as well. She even ordered an Uber, and of course, as we know with Uber, everything's tracked. Now, the Uber driver did come, but she never showed up at the pickup spot, so he eventually leaves a couple minutes later, um, and then we know that Schlater followed Tess to where she was sitting, what we think is she was sitting and waiting for that Uber at the time, but a short while later, they end up walking down a stairwell, and 40 minutes later, there's video of Kaylin Schlater leaving, and Tess Ritchie's never seen alive again. When 
Tess failed to return home, you know, that night or the next day, it seemed that very quickly, like this story was was circulating around as, a, you know, a, a, a missing persons case that people were very concerned about her. W- what initially made it so suspicious or so concerning? Do, do you know why this kind of caught um, caught attention so fast? So people were vanishing from the village. It was just there was so much speculation at the time and fear that there was a serial killer at play. People were scared. We were telling stories about it all the time. Um, People that were living in the village said they felt police were not protecting them. These, of course, are people who live in the gay village in Toronto. And, in fact, they were right because, as we would later learn, there was a serial killer, and it was Bruce MacArthur. But Tess wasn't part of that. Still, her disappearance happened around the same time. And... It wasn't taken seriously. That was the argument because her sisters put out these posters. It was her sisters who searched for her, her friends as well. It was her mother who came from North Bay. And it was clear to the family that something was wrong. And many in the city were questioning whether police were taking it seriously enough, not only her disappearance, but of course all those other men who had disappeared before her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. And I recall, like, I remember watching the news reports and, seeing Tessa's photo in the reports and whatnot of a, of a missing young woman in Toronto. And it always, you know, the articles would kind of end with explaining the area's history for mm-hmm. missing, missing people. And yeah, of course that would take a pretty um, incredible turn with Bruce right. MacArthur's address uh, arrest. That's right. Mm-hmm. Now only uh, days after Tess went missing, things really took a, like a heart-wrenching turn. And, and you, you mentioned how the fact that it was her sisters and her family looking for her. Of course, the police were involved, um, and it was a major story already, you know, before the point that she was, was found. But the way she was found really just added an incredible amount of cruelty to this whole situation. You, I know you were on the ground reporting when this happened. Tell me about what you learned and, and how you found out about how Tess was, was actually located. Right. So again, police had been heavily criticized because, um, you know, why had they not found Tess's body? And then, um, you know, her body, we learned, had been lying just 40 meters from a location where officers were called to check a few days before. And it was alleged that a couple of officers hadn't canvassed the neighborhood properly, didn't talk to neighbors or search the property. Um, And those officers were charged, by the way, with misconduct. And I know we'll get to that later. But It was, in fact, Tess's own mother with a friend of hers who found her body at the bottom of a stairwell. And it's worth mentioning that the murder actually helped launch a dedicated missing persons unit in Toronto because there was, it it just caused so much controversy and everyone was just so shocked. And I, I recall very vividly a news conference that Police Chief Mark Saunders had held, and I asked him point blank in that news conference, how could this happen? How could a mother discover her own daughter's body and not police officers. It really was so shocking at the time, and it was just gripping, you know, in the city, in this country, and I think it still is, and it just sort of takes your breath away. Um, As a mother, I couldn't even, it's unfathomable, really. And and again, she was found basically where she was last seen, so it's it's just amazing that, and and just so utterly tragic. um, Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, but that's the way it turned out. And, and when when Tess was located, I, I think initially the the news circulated that she was found and, and she was deceased. 
But it was very quickly after that that the um, that the news came out that it it appeared that foul play was involved and that there was a person of interest that police wanted to speak with. I think actually the initial article I read about this person of interest that the police wanted to get in touch with, I think actually you may have wrote it or or <laughs> or appeared in it in, in some capacity. So tell me a bit about how. Word got out that this wasn't just, you know, a, a young woman falling downstairs or something and that someone else was likely involved. So there were a number of news releases that came out in the days following Tessa's disappearance. As I mentioned, first it was that she was missing. Then it was that she died, but it, there was nothing suspicious about the death. And then it was a homicide um, and that the cause of death was neck compression. And so, so much about this story was really just unraveling over the course of, I would say, you know, weeks. And then it was months until, of course, the arrest was made. Um, you know, it, it was shocking, really, and nobody really understood how could this have gone from a, a basic missing persons case to a murder. Um, I remember that we, when, when police released the name of the suspect, we had gotten the Schlater's home address and that I went to the home. I remember we spoke to some neighbors who all indicated it was a family of four, mother, father, and two sons. Kaylin was the older son. I remember it was it was unclear what the connection was between this murder victim and this man now accused of murder. Um, I'll add that initially he was arrested for second-degree murder, and that was upgraded to first-degree. And I do recall it took a long time to finally arrest him. Um, and when that happened, it was certainly... There was talk about relief on the streets. People felt relieved that, you know, this alleged killer was off the streets. But there were still so many questions. Um, and, of course, um, as we mentioned a little bit, was also the fact that, you know, where were Toronto police in all this? Mm-hmm. And as a, as a news reporter, did you know what connected him to Tess? Like where he came from in, in connection to this crime? Did you have any idea? No, I mean, we just knew that this was a guy that was out that night and, um, that, you know, there was a photo photograph of him um, on Church Street. And so we had no idea. And I think we knew for a, quite a while that they didn't even know each other. I mean, they were about the same age. So I guess maybe people would have assumed at the time that maybe they but maybe that there was some sort of relationship. Um, but no one knew. And, and it was it was really there was so much mystery in this case. And then, of course, many twists and turns. Yeah, and, and one of those twists, even before this went to trial, was the the family very publicly, I believe, pointed a finger at at the police, um, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, alleging their mishandling of of the of the case, and that was it was a lot more than just the family. Basically, Torontonians who are following this story had big uh, big concerns with how the police handled it. W- what exactly were the concerns that people had with the police? Like what? Were, what did what was said that they did wrong or didn't do? Absolutely. Well, we do know for a fact that two police officers were charged with misconduct. I mentioned earlier, so I'll get more into that. It was there was a police investigation because there was so much anger and resentment that again, a mother, how could a mother find her daughter's body? How were police you know, it just by all indications police couldn't have taken it seriously enough if the mother was the one to find her daughter's body. So, again, a couple of police officers, um, two constables, both with uh, 51 Division in Toronto, they were charged with two counts of misconduct for neglect of duty under the Provinces Police Services Act. Now, both officers had gotten a radio call 
um, about 4 p.m. the day after Tess went missing, they were told, you know, very basic information, check an address in relation to this missing person's case. And when they got to the scene, they found out that the spot was the last known location where she had been seen. But it's alleged they didn't search the adjoining property. They didn't look at the immediate area thoroughly, because honestly, I can't figure out how they wouldn't have seen her if they had, and that they didn't conduct a canvas of neighbors. And that obviously would have led to information. Um, Also, that they failed to notify a supervisory officer of whatever it is that they found or, or, or didn't find. And so... Um, so there was a lot of anger and resentment about this, um, because I could tell you having been to the location many times, um, after Tess was found, it's almost impossible to to figure out how a person, an officer wouldn't have seen a body there, um, because it was so easy for Tess's mother and her friend to, to notice her laying there because it's, it's, it's a building at the corner of a pretty popular street that was under construction. But then if you can picture just next to that building, there's a stairwell that's not blocked off. You can walk right up to it. And just down the stairwell, you just peer right over, was where Tess Ritchie's body was found. Now, we'll start getting into the trial here, So, but first, just to kind of put it in perspective, so why don't you set the scene, like, tell us what the feel in the courtroom was like leading into this trial. I can't imagine how emotional this must have been. Very, very emotional case. Family of each, you know, both the victim and the accused in the courtroom every day. So, um, you know, Kaylin Schlater would sit in the prisoner box every day in his navy blue suit with his white shirt. His mom and dad would sit directly behind him. There was very little eye contact, if any at all. Um, And for many of the court dates, his younger brother showed up as well. Um, The parents had, I don't know if it's a relative or a close friend who came as well, a support person. And then a lot of observers, many observers, and these are just regular people who just were fascinated by this case, who were there probably more often than I was. Um, really until the verdict came down. And then on the other side, um, you know, where the crown was sitting, behind the crown, was Tess Ritchie's family. Her mother, almost every single day. Um, Her four sisters, nearly every single day, if not every day. Um, The partner of one of her sisters. And, And a lot of Tess's friends came very frequently. And, you know, keep in mind, this was, you know, seven, a seven week trial. And, you have to think about how people's lives get put on hold for such an extended period of time. But from day one, you know, from day one when Tess went missing and then right after when her body was found and it was deemed a homicide, her family and friends have fought tooth and nail for justice for her. Um, and so it was important for them to be there. Although many times, you know, I wouldn't say many, but there were times where they'd have to leave the courtroom because pictures or evidence was shown that it's just obviously too much to bear. Mm-hmm. Now, first up in the in the trial would have been the prosecution presenting their version of what happened that night. Tell me about basically the the Crown's idea of of, of what happened between uh, Kaylin and uh, and Tess, and, and what evidence did they use to support it? So the Crown argued Kaylin Schlater was this predator who should be convicted of first degree murder. The Crown had argued that he had sexually assaulted and strangled Tess before leaving her body at the bottom of that stairwell. The prosecutor, Bev Richards, um, 
she had said that this was a guy who stalked Tess, who isolated her by bringing her to this outdoor stairwell, that it was clear from video evidence she had no interest in him, but he had lured her away from the public into the alleyway, um, that she said no to him when he wanted sex, but that made him angry. The Crown also had an undercover cop testify who said Schlater told him once he'd been arrested several months later that this is that you know he had said I like a challenge and that sometimes you have to push the boundaries with women and so um, so a ton of evidence there was security footage prosecutors argued it was clear from what you could see that she Tess had no affection or interest in Schlater um, that you know she called an Uber just after 4 a.m. Um, when he sat down with her, and I'm visualizing it, when he sat down with her on this concrete barrier following her friend's, you know, departure when her friend left, that, you know, they got up just before this Uber would, would arrive and that he would escort her down to the stairwell. That there was, you know, all kinds of video was shown throughout this trial. Um, you know, at 4.14, we see Tess Ritchie and Kaylin Schlater walking toward that stairwell. And then there's nothing. And then 45 minutes later, video of Kaylin Schlater calmly walking away. No sign of Tess Ritchie. Also, we heard from undercover cops, two of them, um, that the Crown had uh, brought forward as um, witnesses. Schlater told them a lot of info that they relayed in court about how he had said he slept with over 40 women, about how, um, you know, he was this, I guess, like a Prince Charming, if you will, that the girls found him charming. He, he told a lot of stories to them, and the un- undercover cops relayed that, you know, as testimony. And, and court also heard from a jailhouse informant. So this was pretty interesting. The Crown had said, it, you know, the Crown presented this, this person who um, his, his identity is, is um, concealed, and he was a former cellmate of Keelan Schlater. This is a guy with a long record, um, and so, you know, you, you take it as you will, but this is a person who testified that he had no reason to lie about this because he, you know, had nothing to gain, but that Schlater confessed to strangling Richie to him. So this is a guy who shared a jail cell with Keelan Schlater hmm. for two months, and, and that was what he said, that there was a confession made to him while they were in jail together. Wow. And in some of that, there was one particular piece of video that they showed of uh, outside of the nightclub. And, and Kalen was, he was just kind of like, there was like a crowd of people who had left the nightclub kind of milling mm-hmm. about outside. And he seemed to just be kind of lingering, looking at people. Like, the, do you remember exactly. seeing that video? Like, cause I, yep. that one really painted my opinion of like what he was up to that night. Yeah. So that's exactly right. So, you know, this is, um, again, so much surveillance video. So this is a surveillance video. Um, I believe it's off the club. And it, it shows it, um, it's a northbound view of Church Street. And you're looking at, you know, what, what any club would look like after last call. A bunch of people kind of hanging out, right? Lingering, loitering. Um, and he comes out and he is waiting for, so as we learned, he had a previous conversation with a woman who'd been at the club. And then when they left, she left with a man. And he's standing there for a while waiting and waiting and waiting. And as the crowd said, he was waiting because he was hoping to go home with that girl, that he was looking to have sex. He wanted to have sex that night, and he was going to find it wherever he could. But that girl ends up leaving, and so he's looking around. And then Tess Ritchie shows up. And the video shows him trailing behind Tess and her friend. And so, you know, that was really 
um, you're right, that is kind of a bit of a de defining moment, if you will, in the video, and the video kind of sort of, sort of speaks for itself in that this does look like, as the Crown presented, a man who was looking for something. I understand the defense and Kalen had a completely different version of the story. What what was basically his defense? Like, how did how did his representation explain all this evidence against him, and you know, and how it looks? A much different picture. Mm -hmm. So the defense lawyer said that he was this easy target because he was, in fact, the last person seen with Tess Ritchie, based on all kinds of video. Um, but he argued he was innocent. He pleaded not guilty to first degree murder. And the defense pointed the finger at another man entirely who is seen in the area that night. Um, there is video that picks up this other person. And the defense suggested that he watched Tess and Schlater. Um, he watched them make out and then he vaulted over a fence and a wooden gate to get into the alley where no one would see him and that he was the one who committed the murder, that Kaelin Schlater was innocent. And that was really the defense in a nutshell. Hmm. And Kalen's um, defense was basically that when he was with Tess in the stairwell making out, he had just left her there. He he decided to walk mm -hmm. away and left her alone, which right just seems it that seems odd. It does seem odd because you know a, a man wouldn't leave a young woman, a young man wouldn't leave a young woman in a dark alley, and he said you know he'd asked her should I stay? And she sort of waved him off, no, I'm fine. And then he claimed that she took out her cell phone and she was using her cell phone and she was distracted on that. And it's like, no, you can go, I'm done with you. In a dark alley at four o'clock in the morning, really unusual for, you know, a petite woman to do that. So, so yeah, a lot of it sort of didn't add up. Were you in the courtroom when, because he did eventually take the stand in his defense. Right. Were you in the courtroom for any of any of these Absolutely. parts? Absolutely. Tell me about I that. I, I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Tell me, tell me about him on the stand. So, I mean, I was in the courtroom. The courtroom was packed that day. Obviously, the same people as usual, the same observers, his family, her family, and really there was not a seat to be had because it's just so unusual for defense to put forward, you know, the accused. And so everyone was dying to hear his voice, just to hear from him. Um, and so he did take the stand, and it was a very unusual start to, to you know, hearing from him. The defense threw a bunch of questions at him, you know, quick, quick questions, and his answers were no, no, no. And, and other, like, you know, did you kill Tess Ritchie? Absolutely not. Did you sexually assault Tess Ritchie? Absolutely not. Um, and that's kind of how it started, and then it slowed down. He, to me, did appear nervous. I found that he seemed very uncomfortable. There is a point in the day where he appeared to become emotional. Um, I, I say appeared to because, you know, I don't, I don't know. He looked to be. Um, but he began his testimony by telling the jury that on that evening he had been drinking with some friends before heading to the club, that they ordered food, and that he went out to Cruise and, Tango, Cruise and Tango's. Rather. Again, that's the club. And that after last call, he ended up talking with Tess and her friend Riley outside the club. He had said, you know, they seem like nice people, nice sociable people. So we hung out and he said, you know, a series of other details. And that a short while later, it was Tess who asked him if it was okay if she kissed him. So he put it all on Tess Ritchie, that she was the one who made the moves. He also testified that they went down the stairs and, you know, consensually began making out. He said he told her that he had some condoms. 
Um, but she said she was on her period and that she couldn't have sex and that he was okay with that. Um, but that's when he said he ejaculated in his pants and became embarrassed. And there, of course, was a lot of attention on that in, in you know, his testimony by both the defense and the Crown. But he continued to maintain that that was embarrassing for him um, and that, you know, shortly after that, there, there was no reason to stay. So he offered Tess Ritchie to go back with him to his family's home because he still lived at home. But again, as I mentioned earlier, she declined, said, no, it's okay, I'm fine, you can go, and he left. Another thing that we heard from him was that, um, as I mentioned, that there were these undercover cops, right, who said that he had told them all kinds of stuff. So his argument in defense of that was that he had lied to the two men who he believed were criminals. Of course, he didn't know they were cops because they were undercover. And that the reason he had said all kinds of stuff, including that he'd slept with 40 women, was to protect the fact that he's bisexual. So he claimed that he was worried that that information would come out and he didn't know how that would be taken, you know, in, in jail. And so he had lied. Um, but of course, yeah. So it was, yeah, it was, it was definitely a fascinating day. Um, and, and that, that was his testimony that test made the move. Yeah. And it was like, like kind of the, the temperature in the trial was, was really ramping up at this point. And it mm-hmm. was shortly after his time on the stand ended that the case almost got delayed because of the COVID-19 pandemic, like right. the, just the the absolute worst timing. But this, the case managed to continue and, and play out. So what happened with, with that? Like what led to the case almost being stopped and then continuing? So it's, it's amazing, really, the timing of it all. I mean, this pandemic just, you know, you know, many people would say it feels like it kind of came out of nowhere didn't come out of nowhere, but it just, it's become a pandemic so quickly and so much has changed in just days. Well, this trial, you know, obviously the wheels of justice (laughs) grind slowly and it took so long to get to trial. And then of course the trial lasted, you know, up over seven weeks, I believe it was. And then here we are in the final week and we find out that, you know, everything's being shut down in the city, of course, across the country, but um, everyone's waiting to find out what's going to happen with, closing arguments. So it was, you know, the Monday and the Tuesday that the Crown and the defense would give their closing arguments. And then a couple of days later, the judge was set to give his instruction to the jury and then they would begin deliberations. Well, really it was the night before the closing arguments that it seemed court was going to be shut down. And so there was a lot of questions and I, I was in touch with Tess Ritchie's family and, and they too were concerned not because of COVID-19, but because, you know, I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure that that's in the back of their mind, but for them, it's always been about justice for tests. And how could they get so far only to have this put on hold? Well, remarkably, um, it was up to the trial judges in, in Ontario to decide in, in criminal cases whether they would continue and finish up a trial, especially in this case, it was really like the ending, right? And so the judge allowed this to continue. And I do know that there were a number of... Um, you know, uh, what's the word? I guess like there were unique circumstances put in place to abide by the advice by the of the experts, the social distancing, physical distancing. But um, but the jury did deliberate uh, for three days, and they were sequestered, and um, and then they came up with their verdict. Wow, and, and I could be wrong, but were not all the other cases that were playing out in Ontario like frozen? Absolutely. Absolutely. I actually, I'm, I'm fairly certain this was the only one in the province that continued um, to the very end. Wow, that that's amazing. It says a lot about 
the profile of the case and kind mm-hmm. of recognizing what the family had had been to up to up to this Absolutely. point. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Um, now, th- as we just said there, the the case did continue. The closing arguments were were presented. Were th- were there any surprises in the closing arguments, or was it very much uh, similar to the you know the opening arguments, basically just reinforcing their case? Absolutely, just reinforcing their case, summing up what they'd seen. You know, at this point, it's so many weeks of testimony and evidence, and so you know the, the crown and the defense they wrap up their arguments and you know put a bow, and then you know you hand it off to the jury, and, and everybody just waits and. Um, the, Waiting is painful. It really is. And I'm sure it's excruciating for the family. And then just the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic, kind of everything all combined. I can't imagine what it was like. I know that the Richies sat in court every single day waiting and waiting and waiting till 7 o'clock at night because that's when the deliberations would finish for the day. Um, and, and then, as we mentioned, it was finally um two hours before the end of what would have been the third day that they came in and said, we have a verdict and everybody returned to court. You have 15 minutes to get there. And I, I know you were, um, you were a shut in in your house, uh, avoiding the mm-hmm. pandemic and weren't able to be there for the delivery of the verdict. That must've just killed you after following the story so long. Absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, you know, because it becomes more than just a case. You, you get to know people, and, um, and so the family became incredibly important to me. And, um, you know, whatever happened, I, I just, I've always felt very strongly that this is an incredible family, and they're so strong and so courageous. And, uh, and you know, as I mentioned so many times, like, this is just a group of strong women who wanted justice for their youngest. And, uh, and so it, it broke my heart not to be there. Um, for the day that they would really find justice for Tess. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people were surprised that, mm-hmm. I, well, at least I know I can speak for myself. I know I was surprised that the deliberations even took more than a day or two. But l- like you just said, I think it was a, a little over three days. So tell me, uh, tell me about, the, uh, about the verdict and, and what you learned, because uh, I know there were, uh, Global had other reporters there. But what did you learn about the delivery of the verdict and the reaction? So the delivery was quick. It took a while to get everybody in place, just given the craziness and the, you know, the surreal times that we're experiencing right now. Um, but the verdict came back, first-degree murder. That comes with an automatic life sentence, no chance of parole for 25 years. So it really is you know, the justice that the Richies were searching for, because that was what the Crown had, had been seeking. Um, and so... After that, you know, it'll be sentencing, but again, it's, it's pretty basic because that's, you know, first-degree murder, it comes with life. And um, we heard a little bit from the, from the Richies when they left the court, and, you know, it's relief, but it's, it's emotional. I mean, it's, you know, this is, when, this is when the breakdowns happen. It's the exhaustion mixed with the, you know, yeah, it's the exhaustion, the emotional fatigue of everything. And, and at the end of the day, the heartbreak doesn't go away, Right. So, um, and so I think that's kind of what we heard. But of course, there was also, um, there was also mentioned that when he was, when the jury was read out and Kaelin Slater was escorted from the courtroom in handcuffs, that, that a family member had yelled out, killer, um, which is not uncommon. You know, we hear that a lot when, when, it, when a verdict comes down and it's, it's that release, right? It's that pent up anger and, and fear. And, and so much of it is fear because you just don't know. I mean, it's in the hands of, 12 jurors. And, and in this case, you know, they came back with a first degree verdict. Wow. Now, as, as someone who poured over the case 
to the to the point that you have were you surprised at all about about the decision or, or was this what you were expecting as you watched this play out I feel like I never expect anything because you just really have no idea um you know because any it could go I it can always go either way um it can come back with a lesser you know verdict um so I I was happy for the family um you know the crown had a very strong case but you know, as we mentioned, as much video as there was to show, you know, the progression of that evening um, or early morning hours when Tess disappeared, that crucial piece of video showing what exactly happened, the murder, doesn't exist. And so there's always that fear, you know, is the rest of it enough for a jury to convict? Um, and in this case, it was because everything was just it, the Crown's case was just too, was so strong. Yeah, and as seen, all often seems to happen in a in a case like this is, just as the jury begins deliberations, inevitably there's like a news report that comes out about you know what the jury didn't hear, and and in this case in particular, some of the information that wasn't allowed to be presented to the jury against Kalen, to me at least seemed really compelling. Can you tell me a bit about what wasn't presented in the courtroom that may speak to his motives, perhaps. You're right. Hugely compelling evidence. The jury, for example, never heard about how Kaylin Schlater had this obsessive interest in violent pornography that did feature non-consensual sex, um, that he you know, enjoyed images of choking. The jury did not hear about the fact that he had an interest in choking with his previous partners, um, with other women. The judge had decided um, in pretrial that that evidence would be excluded because of the probative value of the evidence. That it was so, the probative value of the evidence was apparent in his words, and so um, it was excluded. And so the jury did not hear about it. And um, also, according to other court documents, so I was in court. I was in court when that previous stuff was presented. I was not in court, but court documents suggested as well that on Schlater's cell phone there had been Google searches that included searches for forced sexual acts, and that investigators had also found his phone had been used to access a particular video that was called Teen Forced and then Thrown Away Like Garbage, Um, and that depicted, or does depict rather, a sexual assault of a young woman, including neck compression, and as we know, inevitably, um, Tess Ritchie did die of neck compression, um, and she was sexually assaulted and murdered that way. And so, so all of this was very compelling material, but no, none of it was presented in trial. But in the end, the jury still came back with that first-degree murder verdict. Wow. Now, I'm sure the judge in the, the legal process has its reasoning, but as a layman myself, like it just seems absurd that that wouldn't be <laughs> like significant enough to warrant you know inclusion in in the prosecution's case against him. But I guess, like, fortunately, as as you said, the jury had made the right decision without that. But I just, for me, like, I think thinking if putting myself in the shoes of the family, knowing that that evidence and information is there but not presented, that must have just, like, I'm thinking while they're waiting for the deliberations, I'd be thinking about this. Because to me, it's almost as not as compelling as the video evidence and whatnot, but it really just kind of paints a picture of why what appears to happen may have, may have happened. I, I totally agree. And I'm sure it does weigh on them and did weigh on them and, and, and 
probably was very frightening for them. Um, I guess at the end of the day, the judge had to make a call, you know, and it had no, that was separate from the act of murder of Tess Ritchie. And so it was decided that, you know, like any prior conviction, as, as an example, it would not be part of this particular case. Um, but I'm sure it was a huge relief when, you know, as we said a couple times that, you know, it didn't matter in the end, it, you know, because the jury came back with its decision. Yeah. Now, for you, uh, having been with this case since the beginning and attending so much of the, the activity in the courtroom, was there one piece of evidence to you that really, like against Kalen, that really stood out to you as being, you know, something that may have affected the jury's decision or, or affected the overall picture of his, uh, his guilt? It's such a tough question. You know, I, I try to approach everything unbiased. Every person, as we know, is innocent until proven guilty. Certainly the Crown had a very strong case. Again, the only missing piece was the video showing the murder. Um, but at the end of the day, the jurors felt Kaylin Slater was guilty. They believed it. Um, and so he was convicted, and he will, of course, spend a lot of time behind bars. I felt that the video was hugely helpful, whatever we did see, in really painting the picture of the sequence of events that night. You know, you, you do see Tess walking away from Kaylin. You do see him following behind her. Um, you do see this carefree existence of hers. Um, and as we referred to earlier, him standing outside the bar kind of looking for something. So... So much of, of the Crown's case really was bolstered by all of this video. So I felt that the video helped portray the evening, um, you know, but whether he was guilty or not guilty, um, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think the jury made the right call. Mm-hmm. And now to, to wrap it up, I, I guess like initially Tessa's disappearance really captured a lot of attention, both because she just comes across as, very relatable, like the type of person that we all know. We've all been, you know, in our young 20s going to a nightclub in, you know, a city like Toronto. But after, um, it, so it's easy to understand why the this story captured so much attention early on. But even throughout the trial, this became one of the biggest stories in, in Canada as this was playing out. Why do you think it is that, that Tess Ritchie and her story and this crime against her why do you think it, it captured the attention it has overall? Tess could have been anyone. Any young woman out in the village that particular night, November 2017, could have been Tess Ritchie. She was this beautiful young woman, you know, so many pictures of her. She was a stunning young girl, huge hopes for the future, this beautiful family of sisters, all close relationships, plenty of girlfriends, just this social butterfly. She was so young. And she had so much promise. And, you know, the fact that she just crossed paths with a man that that night, who as the Crown argued successfully, was out for sex, and she said no, it cost her her life. So really, it could have been anyone. She was the heart of her family. And the heart's broken. And, you know, even though justice is served and and a killer is behind bars, it doesn't matter because for the Richies, Tess isn't coming home. Nothing is going to bring her back. And also the fact that for a mother to find her own child's body, Tess's story is truly the unfathomable. I mean, nobody could imagine how it wasn't a police officer to locate Tess's body, that it was her mother. It's just so much about this story. It's just, it's gripping and it just, it really rips your heart out. Um, And so at the end of the day, I just, 
I feel relieved for this family that they found the justice that they've been seeking. And I hope that one day they're able to focus on, you know, not the horrible way that she died, but the incredible life that she had and the amazing memories that her sisters often talk about. I want to thank you for joining Karen and I in this discussion surrounding the murder of Tess Ritchie. Like I've said many times in the past, I continue to be amazed by how much horror and heartbreak can be unleashed as a result of one person's senseless and thoughtless act. The world lost a special person in Tess Ritchie. And as far as why, it seems the only reason is one man's selfish quest to please his own morbid desires. In following Tessa's story, it's apparent how much she's loved and how many people love her. The world undoubtedly is worse off without Tess in it. I only hope that the Canadian justice system allows Tessa's loved ones to mourn her loss without fear that her killer will see freedom anytime soon. And with that, we'll end this episode of Nighttime. But before we part, I want to end with some thanks. First, A huge thank you to Karen Lieberman for joining me on this episode. Karen, I'm proud to have had you on the show. Your reporting on this story has been incredible. Tess is fortunate to have had you covering her story, and Global News is fortunate to have you covering it for them. In addition to Karen, I'd like to thank the Canadian band Voxomnia for providing the music for this episode. And lastly, but most importantly, a huge thank you to the listeners of Nighttime. Without you, this show would have seen the light of day many moons ago. And with that said, if you want more nighttime, let me recommend the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can access a separate feed where the episodes are posted earlier than in the free feed and are done so without any advertising. But beyond the regular episode, the premium feed also includes the nightcap after show episodes in which I and a guest climb a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole. You can access the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. And for anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't kick in financially, you can give me a big hand by simply telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or an equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on or off the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at nighttimepod. If you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at nighttimepodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and stay safe out there. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Thank you. Thank you.